You want to take your Bibles out if you uh, have one with you and turn to the book of John chapter 3. So how many of you have uh, your Christmas tree up? How many don't want anything to do with a Christmas tree? You don't have one. Eh, bless your hearts. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I was surprised. I saw how many Christmas trees are sold each year in, in the U.S. And it was far lower than I would have thought. 25 to 30 million trees are bought every um, year. So there's about 320 seven, 28 million people in the United States. So that means that everybody else has artificial trees or doesn't have any tree and not into Christmas. We're going to talk about the Christmas tree this morning. Uh, We've been doing a a short series uh, called the shadows and the traditions talking about uh, different Christmas traditions that we observe and uh, kind of looking behind those traditions and say, what can those traditions say uh, about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so we looked, uh, we looked last week about, talked about Christmas music and the week before about Christmas lights. Next week we'll be talking about the Christmas card. But today talking uh, about Christmas tree. And this is, as I said a couple of weeks ago, this is a tradition that goes back to perhaps 1600s in Germany, surrounding area. It was a, a, its roots were pagan and that People thought the gods were ups, would be upset with them in the fall, in the fall because everything stopped uh, blooming, everything stopped thriving, the leaves would fall off the trees. And uh, then in the spring, when everything started to grow again, they would think, oh, the gods are happy with us again. So they bring in um, some evergreen branches during the winter just to remind them that this is going to pass sooner or later. And then Christians eventually, again, 16, 1700s, Uh, converted that idea to a full tree and they began to put little candles on the trees to remind them about Jesus being the light of the world. Well, uh, in the courts in Europe in the 1700s, 1800s, trees began to be a big deal for any kind of festivals. And so the nobility would have trees if they were having some sort of birthday party or something like that, not always evergreen. And uh, if they weren't evergreens, they'd sometimes paint the leaves gold uh, they would put little treats, hang little treats from the trees, little decorations made out of paper, uh, some food things, and so forth. It was back in 1848, though, that an engraving was made of a Christmas tree celebration in the royal palace in Britain uh, with Prince Albert and Queen Victoria, and this little Christmas tree with lights on it, and there was a, an engraving made that went uh, viral, so to speak, as viral as you can do it in 1848. And uh, the Americans picked up on this Christmas tree uh, thing. And so that was kind of the start in, in our country. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, by the 1930s, almost everybody seemed like everybody had a Christmas tree in their house. But we want to look into the shadows of this tradition today and talk about a different kind of tree. So if you follow along with me in John chapter 3, we're going to actually look at... Uh, two trees today, both of them in the pages of history, biblical history. John chapter 3, beginning of verse 13, and this is a conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. If you know that story, you know that Nicodemus was on uh, one of the elite Jews. There was a council that was part political, part religious in its authority called the Sanhedrin. 
Uh, in the time of Jesus, the Romans gave the Sanhedrin uh, a measure of clout underneath their own uh, oversight. And the only way you got in the Sanhedrin was, one, if you were um, somebody who was prominent in the, in the society, uh, two, who was wealthy, and then three, who had some sort of religious um, clout, uh, mostly Pharisees, some Sadducees on this council. Nicodemus was a member of that council, and most of the people uh, that made up the, the Sanhedrin were um, hostile to Jesus. Not the case with Nicodemus, but he didn't want anybody to know that because he figured his colleagues wouldn't be happy with him kind of uh, warming up to Jesus. So he made a visit to see him at night when nobody else would see him. And this, this is part of the conversation Jesus had with him. Verse 13. <clears throat> no one has ever gone to heaven and returned. But the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, and that's Jesus' self-designation, the Son of Man, must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Let's ask God for his help. Father, as we um, talk about these two trees this morning, and we're in the midst of Christmas. May we um, be reminded by the evergreen trees in our living rooms and our family rooms of this greater tree. And we, um, as Americans, are, um, we're just, we love to indulge in this season and this holiday. There's so many wonderful things about it. Opportunity for family members to get together and catch up and and uh, just enjoy each other's company, opportunities for businesses to say uh, to their employees, we appreciate you, uh, the chance to sit down and exchange gifts with people that we care about, uh, to sing songs uh, of acclaim to you for um, what you have done in the incarnation. So many wonderful things. And I, I pray that you would guard us against being caught up in the side issues and uh, miss the key issue, uh, to be preoccupied with the peripheral instead of um, the focal point, what really matters. Guard us against that, and may we make much of the season with our friends and colleagues and teammates and classmates um, and even acquaintances maybe that we bump into that we haven't for a while. Uh, that conversation would not be just about the trappings, but also about the centerpiece, the focal point, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. There are two trees that Jesus speaks about in this passage. One, uh, a tree in the Old Testament, and one uh, upcoming, that when Jesus was having this conversation with Nicodemus hadn't yet taken place. And so I want to talk to us about... Uh, the this morning about these two trees. I'm going to call them the mercy tree. <clears throat> and we'll go back to Numbers chapter 21 to read about the first one. Numbers chapter 21, starting at uh, verse 4 in your Old Testament. Because Jesus in this passage talks about a tree that Moses raised up, or a pole. And uh, this took place when the Israelites were on their uh, trip out of Egypt uh, onto the promised land, Canaan. 
And if you know your Old Testament history, you know that that was a longer journey than they ever anticipated. Uh, that was a trip they should have been able to do in uh, several months. Instead, it took them 40 years. Some of that was because they couldn't take a direct route because they would uh, be going through some lands where people would be hostile to them, and they were, after all, several million strong. And some of it was because when they finally did get to the border of Canaan, to the border of the Promised Land, um, they got scared. They sent spies into the land who came back with report, most of them saying, it's a really good, good land, but we can't, we can't go there. We can't, uh, uh, we can't take over the people that are there. We won't be able to win a battle if we go up against them. And so they're not there yet. They're not at the border yet. They're still in transit, and they're going around uh, the Dead Sea and heading up to what's today Jordan on the east of Jordan. Uh, the king of Edom, which is uh, what is today Jordan, had said, no, you can't, you can't travel through our land. Uh, Moses said, well, look, we won't take any of your food. We won't even drink any of your water. Just let us pass through it. Nope. If you step so much as one foot inside of Edom, I'm going to uh, muster my army and we're going to take you out. And so they had a far more circuitous route than they ever intended to have. And the trip was getting longer and longer. Now, there hadn't been a great trip to begin with. Uh, God had rescued them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Uh, their backs were against the Red Sea. When God parted the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army chased them. God drowned them. But they traveled through wilderness areas that didn't have much in the way of food, didn't have much of the way of the water and way of water. And so the people were kind of crabby. Um, Numbers chapter 21, beginning of verse 4. <clears throat> and the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There's nothing to eat here, nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. And so the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. And then the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. And so Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. And so Moses took a, made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. And then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. This was the first mercy tree. I want you to notice a couple of foundational things about this tree. First of all, it came about because some people were dissatisfied with God. In fact, if you look back previous chapters in, uh, in Numbers, you're going to find the headings uh, over and over. The people complained against God. The people rebelled against God. The people were criticizing Moses. Uh, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses. There was a lot of carping and complaining and, and criticizing, and God looked at all of this and saw it as rebellion. Now, you can't be too hard on the Israelites because, after all, there wasn't much in the way of food in the desert. There wasn't much in the way of water in the desert. They didn't have a, a, a lot of food. In fact, the only thing that, mo that God was providing them was this manna. And he, God had provided, <clears throat> excuse me, provided that in the wake of their complaining about lack of food. And God says, fine, I'm going to take care of your food needs every single day. I'm going to rain down from heaven 
manna. And this stuff would collect on the floor of the desert. And the word for manna simply means what is it, which is kind of interesting. And uh, the scriptures describe it in Exodus 16 as little flakes, little white flakes uh, like wafers. And he said it was similar to coriander seed, but it tasted like it was tinged with honey. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like making them eat a Brussels sprouts or something like that. Now, this is good stuff. But anything good that you have to eat day in and day out after a while gets old. I don't care what you like most. At some point, you're going to get tired of it. Uh, my wife and I went through uh, Elvis Presley's mansion down in Memphis years ago. Took the tour of it. And one of the interesting things on the tour, they said there was a time when Elvis Presley had the cook serve meatloaf every night for six months. And finally, Priscilla had had enough. She said, you can keep eating that if you want, but I'm going to have the cook prepare something else for the rest of us. Six months of meatloaf. I mean, it's, uh, one night is kind of bad enough when it comes to meatloaf. But you think about the thing that you like most, six months of that. And, and that was the kind of thing that they were experiencing. They'd been out in the desert for months on end, and this is all they had to eat. So the Bible says they're complaining, <clears throat> they're complaining about no food, uh, nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. Now, there's a little exaggeration going on there. They said they had nothing to eat, but, of course, they did have the manna. And you want to think, I want you to imagine you're in this situation and you don't have all the things that you need and, and life is hard and it's kind of miserable and it's kind of bitter and you cry out to God and complain about God not doing things for you. And you want to think that God will come alongside of you, pat you on the head and say, I'm sorry I failed you. Let me make things better. And it is really important that we hear some of the words of the Old Testament. Because sometimes when we read the New Testament, we forget words that do appear in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. And after all of this complaint, God sends a bunch of snakes into their midst to deal with what he saw as their rebellion. The Bible tells us that God is slow to anger, that he is very compassionate, that he is a loving God. But never mistake that to, uh, to think that God is okay with us just kind of taking over his role and his position and telling him what to do instead of vice versa. And so all these snakes begin to show up. And the Bible says that many were bitten and died. I take that to mean that this wasn't just a dozen or two dozen or three dozen of snakes, but that they had, perhaps much like in Egypt, that they, had, they were everywhere and that parents were having to warn their children, when you step out of the tent, be very careful where you step. They had to go outside the camp to go to the bathroom. They didn't have any indoor plumbing in those days, and they're going to have to be very careful where they step out in the bushes. They're everywhere, and people are dying everywhere. They're dissatisfied with God. That's what got them here. Don't miss this. The people are dissatisfied with God. And God, as a result, cursed the people with these snakes. And so Moses goes to bat for the people. He prays to God. That's, he is a, a mediator with them. He's a prophet, yes, 
uh, but he's also a kind of priest to them. He go, he's a go-between between the people and God. And God says, here's, here's my instruction for you. Set up a pole, create a replica of a snake, and pin that snake high up in the pole. Say, why high? Because the people were camped all around the tabernacle on four different sides, and there were people who were closer to the tabernacle than others. And so the people in the back had to be able to see the snake because your life depended on seeing this replica on a pole. This is the first mercy tree. God says, I'm going to put a snake up there so you can survive my judgment. And that's exactly what happened. People began to look up at this focal point and live. My wife uh, and I got our Christmas tree a couple weeks ago. And, excuse me, brought it home. And uh, we trimmed off the bottom branches and put it in our little stand there and put it on the porch. And then we went inside and didn't bring the tree in with us. That's because we had to have a time of negotiating where it goes. Now, my wife and I don't see eye to eye about how to lay out a room. Um, Betty um, likes to see the furniture move um, from time to time. And I, on the other hand, I have just enough experience with interior design to be uh, annoying. And so we have to have these conversations. Now, in interior design, uh, there's always a focal point in every room. So if you go into your bedroom, the focal point's almost always going to be your bed. Um, If you go into your bathroom, maybe you have... uh, um, put together a nice custom tile shower with clear doors. That's probably going to be the focus uh, of the bathroom or maybe the vanity and uh, mirrors and the lighting and so forth. In the kitchen, it might be a backsplash or a cooking area where you have a commercial gas cooktop or something like that with a sleek modern ventilation system. In the living room, it might be your fireplace uh, or perhaps a piece of art hanging on the wall. Or maybe it's a window that has an incredible view and you kind of work around that focal point. You start with the focal point and then you factor in the doors and the windows. And there really is only, there really is only one way to arrange the furniture <laughs> properly. And then you throw a Christmas tree into all of that and everything gets weird and ungodly in in a matter of minutes. And so we set up, we, we organized this so that the tree would be at a certain spot and everything else kind of had to work around it because now the tree is to become the focal point in the living room. And even in the house, on Monday night, uh, I said uh, to Betty, I said, do you want to go downstairs in our family room and, and play some games and, and watch the Vikings game? And she said, uh, Let's do that, but do it in the living room. Why? Because that's where the Christmas tree is, and that is now the focal point in the house. And for a season in the life of Israel, the focal point became a tree that looked like a snake because that's what you had to look at if you were going to live. That's what you had to look at if you were going to survive. Now, The focal point 
at Christmas is a different tree than our Christmas trees. It's not one that's based on appearance. It's not one that has its significance is its beauty. By the way, isn't it frustrating when you find the perfect tree at the tree farm and then you turn it around? And there's somehow, you're like, how could it grow like this? There's this big bald patch on the back or worse, a bald patch here and a bald patch on the opposite side. So you can't just put it against the wall and fix it. You have to, by the way, there's a great idea. If somebody wants to make money, you know they have this spray like if you're um, getting bald, you can spray hair on your head. Seriously, it's out there. Wouldn't it be great to come up with a can of spray needles? Just trying to give you some financial resources there. All right, let's shift gears from this first mercy tree that Jesus was pointing back to to the one that he was pointing ahead to that was yet future when he was having this conversation with Nicodemus. The second mercy tree, and it's interesting, the scriptures speak about Jesus' cross as a tree. I'll give you an example. Acts chapter 10, verse 29, uh, 39. Acts 10, 39. And Peter is preaching here. He says, we apostles are witnesses of all that he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem, talking about Jesus. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Now, that's what the NLT says, but you notice a little asterisk behind the word cross. And if you follow it down to the footnote, it says that in the Greek language, this is really the word tree. Actually, it's not even the word tree. That would be dendra in Greek. This is the word zulon, which simply means wood. They hung Jesus on, a, on wood, on a tree. What's interesting is the second mercy tree, the problem was not that the people were dissatisfied with God, but God was dissatisfied with us, the people. We had a fundamental problem with God. Every one of us were sinners, thanks to being descendants of Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says that just as by one man death entered the world and death through sin, so death came to all people because we all sin. So we are sinners by um, family ties as well as by our performance. And God, as a result, is dissatisfied with us. We think, isn't that kind of an extreme reaction? Everybody's alike. We're all sinners. No, nobody's worse than the other. And that's true. But we're all worse than God. And that's the problem. Because God's standard for us is not simply kind of being a little better than the next guy to us, but being perfect. And none of us measure up. So God is dissatisfied with us. What's he going to do? Well, with the first tree... He brought judgment on the people. With the second tree, he brought all his judgment upon his son. Let me take you to Galatians chapter 3, beginning verse 10. Galatians 3, verse 10. Now, the context here is that Paul is trying to uh, warn Jewish Christians 
who are having second thoughts about putting their faith in Jesus, and they are kind of slipping back into this idea that they could be made right with God if they simply kept all the Jewish commandments, all the law of Moses. And Paul is warning them. He says, those who depend upon the law to make them right with God are under his curse. His curse. Because the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. In other words, the curse comes upon you if and only if you don't do everything right. If you can do everything right, you don't have to worry about a curse. For the old uh, covenant people of God, the Israelites, that meant keep all 613 commandments that he had put into the Pentateuch. For us, that means some of those we don't have to keep because we're under the new covenant, but we have some other responsibilities to keep. So if you can do it perfectly, if you can keep all of God's commandments perfectly, then you don't have to worry about a curse. But if you screw up even once, all bets are off. Now you have this problem of a curse. Verse 11. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And that goes back to the idea that a criminal is not to be left out hanging on a pole overnight because he was cursed by being a criminal, but if his body stays overnight on that tree, then the land is cursed because of doing that. Now, I want you to follow me just for a couple of minutes back 2,000 years in time, and I want us to go among the people that are standing at the foot of the cross, people milling around over here and over there and back there, and ask them what, when they see Jesus hanging on this tree, what is it that they see? Go ahead and ask them. Say, what are you seeing? Here you're looking at Jesus up there. What do you see? And you're going to hear a variety of answers from them. For some of them, it's like he's a newsbreak. This just in couple of criminals have been crucified outside of Jerusalem by the Romans. Two of them revolutionaries. One, some sort of delusional guy who thinks he might be a king. Most, most experts agree he's probably just a nut. They're news junkies, just like some of you are. They're just interested in the latest thing that happens in their world. Other people that are looking up, they're going to say, he's just an assignment. That would be the Roman soldiers. The only reason that we're here is to kill him. That's our job. When we get done with this, we have to go back to headquarters and we have a couple other guys we have to put to death today. Other people are going to say he's a curiosity. They saw him do some really amazing things when he was down here. They saw some miracles. 
But there were other things about him that they heard him say that just made them wonder, is this guy totally off his rocker? Is he a nut? Is he a prophet who started out as a, pro- a guy who started out as a prophet, but he's kind of lost his way and he's never going to be remembered? And then there's some other people that are prostrate. They're on their knees. They're weeping. They're crying out to God, how can this be? You see, these are the people for whom Jesus was their focal point, their center. We know from the book of Acts and even some of the Gospels that they didn't fully get what was going on. But they knew this much. Jesus was the center of their world. Jesus was their life. The difference between the first mercy tree and the second mercy tree was that the first one gave them life here on planet Earth. They were going to die sooner or later, though. The second mercy tree, though, offers eternal life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 says, For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Isn't that a great line? For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether dead or alive, when he returns, we can live forever with him. Now that is a mercy tree. The Bible tells us that the early Christians had Jesus as their focal point. Let me have you turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and listen to a few ver- uh, verses there. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, beginning in the middle of verse 32. This is how it describes these early Christians. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering? Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. And sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. When I ask you who are Christians this morning, who is Jesus to you? And one who hung on that mercy tree, who is he to you? Is he your focal point in all of life? Or is he maybe just someone who paid to give you a ticket into heaven? Give you eternal life. But this life here, it's all yours to do with as you see fit. Back in 1850, one of the most prolific hymn writers ever, Fanny Crosby, was 30 years old, not a believer yet. She went to her little uh, 30th Street Methodist Church in New York City. And if you know anything about Methodism, you know there's a lot of emphasis on an altar, a place down the front where you do business with God. And Fanny had gone to the altar already twice in her life. 
and had not found the peace with God that she hoped to find. And so in the fall of 1850, she was down there again, all by herself, no one else there. And there was a prayer offered, and then the congregation began to sing the song, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die. And she said when they got to the fourth stanza, and she heard them sing this line, Here, Lord, I give myself away. She said it dawned on her, and she literally jumped up and said, hallelujah. She said, peace flooded my soul for the first time ever because she said, I realized that I had been trying to hold on to the Lord with one hand and hold on to the world with the other hand. And I wonder if that's true for a few of us. We're trying to hold on to the world, maybe some really good things in the world, some blessings that God has given us. Maybe it's sin, but maybe it's just about that we have um, wrapped our lives around something at the center that isn't Jesus. Let me take you to a story in the book of 2 Kings. As we close, 2 Kings chapter 18. <clears throat> now this is, a, this is a story about the revival in Israel under King Hezekiah and how he began to straighten things out. It says he removed the pagan shrines, he smashed the sacred pillars, and he cut down the Asherah poles. These were all idols that people worshipped. Listen to this. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nehushtan. This was a good thing that God had given to his people something to rescue them and they turned it into an idol you think about all the good things that you and I have in our lives we have the food the Israelites didn't have we have the water we have a lot of financial resources we have a lot of loved ones people that we cherish our spouses, our children, our grandchildren good friends we have a lot of fun things that we enjoy from entertainment to adventures and all that. The question I want to leave us with is have we made the Lord Jesus Christ the focal point of our lives or has something else maybe good displaced it, him and that's now what we worship. Let's ask God for our help. I'll be the first to confess, Lord, that there are some wonderful things and people in my life that can so easily take um, center stage for me. And I would be surprised if there are not some 
brothers and sisters here this morning find that to be true as well. And may this season, when we reflect on the glorious incarnation, the infleshing of your son who left his throne in glory to be made as we are and to go to that mercy tree on our behalf. May the incarnation become sweet and sweeter and maybe perhaps it be the means by which we put Jesus back as our focal point all over again, move him back to the center where he belongs. And I don't know what that looks like for any of us, but I do know that the Holy Spirit desires it more than any of us desire it. And in his good hands, we can rest and say, Spirit, show me what needs to change. Show me what needs to go. Show me what needs to come. And show me what adjustments are needed so that the one who hung on the tree for me becomes the center of not just my Christmas but my life. And that I never look at a Christmas tree the same again. In Jesus' name, amen.